On August 30, 2005, Coast Guard Lieutenant Ian McConnell, he flew a rescue helicopter into New Orleans. And if you remember, the city at the time was almost entirely underwater. And he ran a number of missions, him and his crew in that rescue helicopter. They circled uh, nonstop for days and around the clock. And uh, they did three missions. And in those three missions, they rescued 89 people uh, from those floodwaters. And then they went on a fourth mission. And on the fourth mission, they actually entered the flooded city of New Orleans 12 times. And they did see a lot of people, but they rescued no one. And here's why. On that fourth mission, everybody that they found wanted to stay with their homes. And they refused to board the helicopter. And they all said the same thing to the lieutenant and his crew. They said, send us food, send us water, send us clothing. We're going to be okay. Most of those people, unfortunately, tragically died. But that is a picture of refusing rescue. This morning we're going to start a series going through the letter to the Galatians. And this is the most fiery and impassioned letter that Paul wrote because he is writing to a church that has begun to adopt an idea that is refusing rescue. And so Paul gets pretty fired up when he writes this letter, and it's something else. How many of you have ever, ever written an email, and you're, you're, you're so emotional when you're writing it, and you stop, and before you hit send, you go, no, 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 and you start deleting words, and you edit it, and you save it to your drafts, and then you send it the next day, right? We've done that. Well, in the ancient world, there was no email. In the ancient world, you didn't waste paper. It was very expensive. It was tremendously expensive. So we're not reading an angry rant. We're actually reading a letter that has a dual authorship. There's Paul, who is passionately writing to a church, a group of believers who, are, who have kind of walked from, or are in danger of walking from the true gospel and refusing rescue. But it's also authored by the Holy Spirit, who has superintended all of Scripture, and who, without error and in an infallible way, is communicating something for us that we can enjoy and receive today. So we're going to take a look at this fiery letter this morning. We're going to start in chapter 1. I'm going to read the first nine verses. And we're going to set the stage for the next 13 weeks. And here it is. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you already, let him be accursed. And as we've said before, and now I will say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. This is God's word. Now, Paul is fired up, and I read and yelled, and I probably toned it down a little. 
because when you read when you read it in, in Greek, and I'm a I'm a Greek novice, and I admit it. When I whenever I read in, in Greek to get ready for the sermons, and I like to read the text in the original language, I sound like a a little child struggling through a page of a Clifford the Big Red Dog book. So I'm not trying to come off as a Greek scholar here. But I'll tell you, he is so fired up. Most of his other letters, if you compare the letters, he goes from greetings to thanksgiving. Here, there's no thanksgiving. Here, there's greetings, grace, and peace to you. What? Why does Paul do that? Why is he so angry? Let me give you some historical context really quickly. First of all, the theme of this entire letter is justification by faith alone. Apart from works, apart from our obedience, apart from everything. This letter is scandalous. And it's scandalous today, but it was scandalous by ancient world standards, and I'll explain that in a minute. But this, this book was written about 15, 20 years after the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. And so what was happening was, Paul was going around and saying... Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you can never live. And he kept the law that you could never keep perfectly, which is how it's supposed to be kept. And Jesus Christ has done everything that you could never do. And then he died the sacrificial death that we should die, but we're not. And he rose from the grave on the third day. And that resurrection from death gives us hope that the end of our story is not actually death but that the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of our life, and there will be resurrection, that after suffering, there will be glory. And then Paul went on to say that the ascension of Christ is, is, the, is, is like the detonator on the gospel, because the ascension of Christ brought the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to saving faith. It's, it's God who does it. So, so Paul says all that, preaches all that. That's his message. What happened was there were religious leaders who heard that message and they said, you know what, that is, that is an incomplete message on grace. We need to curb this. So what happened was they started following Paul around and they were saying, oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's Jesus and also keeping the law. And when Paul heard that the message of the gospel went from Jesus Christ did everything for you to Jesus Christ and the life that you're living, Jesus Christ, and your obedience to the law, when Paul heard that they added that and bolted it on, he lost his mind. And the, and, the, and the reason they lost his mind is, as we unpack it, is because that is not the gospel. Paul didn't say that's a subpar gospel message. Paul's used the word accursed a number of times, which in the Greek, it is, I mean, it means to be cursed, it means, but, but you have to understand the tone it was like he was saying, they can go to hell. Like, that's how we would talk about it today. Somebody comes and tells you that it's not Christ alone, that Jesus didn't do it all, they can go straight to hell. That's the tone of the letter. And so the reason why Paul is so fired up about this is because it's not a subpar gospel. It's anti-gospel. And he's not going to let it stand. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's this. Salvation is God's calling, God's plan, God's action and God's work. That's salvation. Front to back. Grace from beginning to end. We're on the receiving end of a great gift. And so this morning we're going to unpack these nine verses asking three questions. The first question is, what is the nature of the gospel? So what's Paul trying to protect? What's the nature of the gospel? The second question is, what is the distortion of the gospel? And then the third uh, question is, what is our assurance in the gospel? So let's start with the nature. What is the nature of the gospel? 
The nature of the gospel is complete and total substitution. It is complete and total sacrifice. It is complete and total gift. We, as the church, gather week in and week out, and sometimes we can become numb to the sacrifice of Christ. And so I'm going to give you a modern-day picture of this, of this complete and total sacrifice. My homiletics prof, his name is Dr. Brian Chappell, and he told a story that took place in his, old, in his hometown of Nashville. The Cumberland River, they, when they're doing work in the river, they would scoop out great scoops of sand with machinery and put the sand in big heaps. And the sand would dry on the surface, and you could walk on it, but underneath it was still moist and wet. It was extremely dangerous because you could sink into the sand. And these two little boys went to play, and we already know where the story is going. And they went to play on the sand, and when they didn't come home from dinner, the parents panicked and they sent out a rescue crew. And when they got out there, they saw the youngest brother. He was about from his waist up, and he was unconscious because the, he had sunk into the sand, and the pressure had caused him to pass out. And the rescue crew started to carefully dig him out, and they, and they were able to revive him. And they said to the little guy, they said, where's your brother? And the little guy said, I'm standing on his shoulders. See, that is the gospel. Jesus Christ, our older brother, willingly giving everything. That little guy's older brother knew exactly what he was doing. When the two of them went and played and they fell into the sand, that older brother knew he was gone. And he picked up his little brother and he put him on his shoulders. Willing. Total. Everything. What did that little brother contribute? Nothing. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is trying to protect. That's why when they said, no, it's not just Jesus. Don't talk to me about this grace, this scandalous grace alone message. Because then the church, if you say that, the church is going to run off and do crazy things. And you know what? That's so stupid. Because when we come to realize that Christ has done it all and given us everything, the Holy Spirit begins to reform these hearts of ours. And he excavates our hearts of stone and he gives us hearts of flesh. And we want to live to the glory of the one who saved us in that scandalous grace. That's what we want to do. So Paul encapsulates that gospel in the first four verses. When you look at it, that's what you see. The, the, the key word in those first four verses is this. So you look at it. Look at it. It's in your lap. Deliverance. Notice, Paul doesn't talk about Jesus' teaching here. When he goes back to, the, when he goes back to say, whoa, this is, what the, this is what the gospel is, he doesn't talk about Jesus' teaching. We would think that. As moderns, as intellectuals, we would say, well, we would say, guys, you've abandoned the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't say that. Why? Because every religious leader throughout all of history, throughout every world religion, has come to teach. Christ came to deliver. The word is deliverance. This is the gospel. Right? This is why we gather. This is why we eat and we drink. This is what we're celebrating. Will we live to God's glory? You bet. Will more and more we hate our sin and want to live to the glory of our Savior and, and embrace the teachings of Christ so that his ethic reforms our life so that we can actually flourish? And, in, and in, Yes. Will we allow our Christian worldview to shape the way that we approach our marriages and parent our children and train them to love, love people in the city whose worldviews are totally contradictory to ours, the total opposite of our ethic? Absolutely. We will love them and give them dignity and nobility. We will follow the teachings of Christ. But following the teachings of Christ is not the gospel. Following teachings of Christ is the result of what the gospel does. 
And Paul goes right back to that and he says, I'm going to take you right back to, to, to the crux, to the core of our Christianity. You can't abandon that. Because the teachers had come along and they diluted it and they messed it up. <clears throat> and it was a tragic of where it went. <clears throat> uh, it was a tragedy of where their teaching went. Because <clears throat> what they were saying is, the core of Christian faith is the life that you're living. But the core of our Christian faith is the life that Christ lived on our behalf. Now listen to me very carefully. For those of you whose antinomian flags are starting to come up, wave. this is freaking me out. I am not downplaying obedience. Paul wasn't downplaying it either. I'm reordering it. Our obedience must be reordered. What the false teachers did was they took obedience and they disordered it. They said, well, your obedience to the law is, is part of what's contributing to your salvation. You and I aren't contributing anything except for the sin that required it in the first place. That's our contribution. And so that's why Paul goes back to this. And when you think about what we've been delivered from and on what basis, you've been delivered from guilt, you've been delivered from the penalty of your sin. It's totally scandalous. Past, present, and future, Christ has done it all. He has bore it all. And, and we've been delivered from all of that apart from anything that we did and apart from anything you're going to do next week. That's a very hard category for us to, 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 to handle. That's why every week when we take the Lord's table, I always say specifically our sins are forgiven past, present, future. Because that is the gospel. When we confess our sin every week in our, in, at the beginning of our worship service, we're not confessing it because Christ hasn't forgiven it. We're confessing it because in our confession, the Spirit does reform. In our confession, in our acknowledgement of our inability to keep God's law, and in our confession that Christ has fully kept God's law, the Spirit does renewal. That's why 1 John invites us to confess. Christ has done it all. We confess without guilt. Without condemnation, because Christ has done it all. That is the gospel. A friend of mine, he's a, he's a writer and author, a, a Lutheran pastor. I love th this, what he says. I'm going to steal a page out of Chad Bird's book. He says, two of the devil's favorite lies are, with enough effort you can keep God's law, and with enough sin you can undo God's gospel. Where does that leave us? It leaves us in worship. It leaves us on our knees. You see, because God's law is meant to be kept perfectly, do we all desire to keep it? Of course we do. Are, are those of us here who say that Jesus Christ is our Savior desire to live in, to the glory of God? Yes, of course we do. But who is keeping God's law in here? Raise your hand. If the perfect, righteous, incredibly, uh, uh, gloriously sacrificial life of Christ is the, the, the standard and the measure of which we are walking in day in and day out, day in and day out, that's the standard. It's not our progress. It's perfection. That's the standard. And so what actually gives us joy to want to say, oh God, oh may I live to the glory of your grace and endeavor to keep your law, though imperfectly, but endeavor to keep it, is the fact that Christ has kept it. And I'm marveling at that. Marveling that he has kept it for me. That's where it leaves us. It leaves us in worship. See, the nature of this grace, the nature of the scandal of this grace it provokes us to glorify the giver of the grace. It provokes us to want to live and enjoy and glorify forever the giver of the grace. That's what it does. That's what Paul is drawing them back to. The doctrine of justification by faith laid out in Galatians, it reveals that we can't add to Christ without erasing him. So we're not adding 
our imperfect contribution to Christ's perfect work. Christ took all of our sin or none of it. He took all of God's wrath on our behalf or none of it. Our sin is gone or it isn't. Christ is totally sufficient or he's not. Christ is keeping God's perfect law for us or we have to keep it. Those are the options. That's what, that's what Paul provokes the ancient Galatians to sit in and be like, boy, this is uncomfortable. What Paul says in those first four verses is that the cross of Christ didn't buy you and I another chance. It's not what the cross was. It wasn't like, this is a chance now for you to get it right. What the cross says is that God is a God of one chance and a second Adam. The first Adam brought sin into the world. Christ is the second Adam. Christ did what the first Adam could not do. And then he did it for us. You and I aren't the third Adam. The church is not the third Adam. There's no third Adam. The church revels in what Christ, the quote-unquote second Adam, has done. Paul provokes them to look at that. You can't add to Jesus without taking away uh, from him. And so, verse 4, when you look at it, that deliverance, it, it plainly states that Christ has left absolutely nothing undone. And we've been freed for a life unto God. We haven't been freed to pay him back in weekly installments. We don't gather gather a church and and prayer, and confess, and worship, and read our Bibles, and and teach our children around the dinner table, because those are somehow installments of paying God back. We don't do any of those things for any of those reasons. We're completely free. He's freed us for free. He's freed us uh, so that we could enjoy true freedom, which of course, as we've talked about before, is not an autonomous freedom, just live like we want, because then we would just go back into our caves. But it's a freedom to live to the glory of the one who saved us, to truly bend our knee to God, and let him guide our lives graciously and so nothing that we do is adding to what christ has done because his his perfect divine achievement isn't being topped up by our human contribution but that's what the religious leaders were saying jesus got you started now you take it from here that's not the gospel that is not the gospel the gospel is not hey um i have taken care of your justification and good luck with sanctification that's on you yeah i i justified you before god but now you have to clean yourself up absolutely not The Holy Spirit and his great work in you has already past tense sanctified you and made you holy before God because of what Jesus did. And now more and more, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, over the course of our lives, more and more we hate our sin, we live to the glory of our Savior. That's what the gospel does. But what the religious leaders wanted to do was blend what the gospel is and what the gospel does and say, if you're doing all these things, then you'll be saved. You will, if you can keep law and Jesus, then you'll be saved. You see, it's so subtle, but it's toxic. It's so subtle, it's the opposite. And Paul blows a gasket over this. And he says, you've erased Christ. So that is the nature of the gospel, this total substitution. That Christ has done it all. So next question would be, what is this distortion? And I've been talking about it a little bit. What is the distortion of the gospel? The distortion of the gospel introduces our need for contribution. The nature of the gospel is substitution. But the distortion of the gospel is you bring a contribution. What are you doing? How are you living? Because that's actually going to determine at the on judgment day, you know, what God's... That, that's the fear. That's the distortion of the gospel. 
that Christ somehow wasn't enough. And when you look at verses 6 and 7, Paul's pretty clear about this. Because in 6 and 7, they grabbed onto something that's not the gospel. Right? Paul doesn't say to them, hey, you guys are pretty close. You know, I mean, good job. Good on you. Your heart's in the right place. Okay, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say your heart's in the right place. He says, your heart, wrong place. Bang. Totally wrong. Fail. F. Zero out of 100. How else can I, where else can I go with this? He says, no. You look at it. He says, he says, he says, you've gone to a different gospel. And then right after that, he goes, not that there is another one. Like, don't let the words matter. Every word matters. Like every word in the scripture, it actually matters. You know how sometimes you and I write things and we're like, you know, you write an email and you're like, that could have been shorter. You know, I write a, I'll write an article and I'm like, you know, that really could have been a hundred words. I could have cut a bunch of stuff out of here. That you can't do that with the scripture. It's not, it's not superfluous in that way where it's just kind of like, well, you know, you can kind of take or leave. Every word matters. And Paul says, there's no other gospel. You're not close. You erased it. That provokes something. What is it that they erased? When... Um, Paul uses the word perversion. The, the Greek word here, because you're tra- you might have a different translation. So I'm going to go to the Greek. The original language, the Greek word is metastrepsia. And that word means perversion. And what it does is it invokes disgust. So the way to read Galatians 1, the first nine chapters, is not, Oh, Galatia, you're so close, but yet so far. Not like that. It, he's angry and he's disgusted. What's your tone when something disgusts you, right? Think about that. You're angry, you're emotional about it, right? You keep saying to your friends, I'm so disgusted, I can't believe. You keep saying to your spouse, like it's, 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 it's like it's eating at you. This is Paul. Because in his heart, what, what he's, he's, his heart is breaking for this church that's, they're about, they're gonna, if they go down this road and believe this false teaching, they're gonna, fors- they're gonna forsake rescue. Right? Salvation isn't like a, a do-it-yourself project. Right? And Paul's like, hold on a second. This is a, this is a crisis about to happen. So it's an intense word. And that's why you notice there twice. He's like, let him be cursed. Let him be cursed. That's, Whoa, that's so intense. Paul, why are you saying that? He says, nobody can change this. An angel can't change it. If I come back, he even uses the royal we. Look at the text. He's like, if we come back and change this message, what's he appealing to? And you get that earlier at the beginning. Verse 1, his apostolic authority. He goes, I didn't make this up. I'm not a teacher of man. The apostles, and the word apostolic gets thrown around today. This person's apostolic because they have a big church. This person's apostolic because 20 pastors, you know, want to bow down and learn how, uh, you know, from their wisdom. That's not apostolic. Apostolic is that you walked with Christ. Like you walked with him and then he taught you and then you, and then you, you saw the resurrection and now you're interpreting all of scripture uh, through the lens of his resurrection. That's an apostle. So there was only 12 of those guys and Paul calls himself the least of them because he saw the resurrected Christ but didn't have the privilege and the joy of walking with Christ. So that, that apostolic group is super small. But Paul, what about Ephesians 4? Uh, you know, Paul gave... Uh, you know, apostles to the church. Yeah, he did. And who do you think they were? Who do you think Ephesus was thinking of when they read that? Oh, yeah, Frank. You know, Frank planted a church, and there's a lot of guys that love Frank's teaching. He's probably an apostle. No. That's what they're thinking of. So this apostolic authority is so narrow and powerful. Don't, get the, don't, don't lose it. That's verse 1. So don't lose that. That's so important. It's so critical. That's why Paul says, nobody can change this. 
Jesus Christ himself, the risen Christ, is the key that unlocks the scripture. Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks our hearts. Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks our eyes so that we can see this great grace and say, thank you, God. You know, that the creator God of this universe is the redeeming God who loves us, who saved us. And Paul says, I'm appealing to apostolic authority, don't change the message. That's what he said. He's intense about it. So this distortion is driving them crazy. But you'd think, why was it so easy for them to embrace the distortion? Why didn't, when, when the religious leaders came and said, oh yeah, I know that Paul gave you this amazing, scandalous message of grace, but you've got to actually keep the law. Why didn't they reject that? Why weren't they like, no way, sola gratia sounds amazing. No way, we're not. Why didn't they reject it? Same reason we reject it. Because nothing in this world operates that way. Everything works by earning. So the moment that they heard something that sounded like earning, they thought, that sounds right. That's why we can spurn uh, the grace of the gospel and kind of get out of the idea of reveling in what Christ did and feel like we're somehow going to contribute to it. That's why it's easy to do it. In the ancient world, they all grew up in a, in a, in a platonic uh, education under the, under the philosophy of Plato, who was very concerned with justice and virtue. And so the Greco-Roman world was an honor-shame culture. And so everything had very much to do about honor and virtue and justice. And the word grace, charis, in the Greek, um, they used it all the time, but they didn't use it the way Paul used it. See, in Canada in 2017, if you, if you aren't a believer, uh, you could be from any worldview or from a position of non-faith. And if you say, give that person grace, you mean it in a Christian way. Because the word has essentially been Christianized. So you would say, give somebody something they don't deserve. That's grace. But at the time Paul was using it, grace meant you give a gift. Right? That's what it meant. It was a gift. But culturally, the people that got the grace were those who deserved it, were worthy of it, and actually had enough political or cultural status to thank you loudly for it. That's who you gave grace to. So when Paul comes along and starts using grace and says... Actually, God, who we are saying is just, is taking these sinners and he's giving them grace and he's calling them just. And the whole Greco-Roman world went, what? How is that just? Well, it's just because God himself came and incarnated himself in Christ and he went to the cross and he paid the price. He was the older brother. He put us on his shoulders. He took it all. So what has been reserved for you? Has there been judgment reserved for you? Has there been, uh, is there guilt reserved for you? Is there payment reserved? No, there's nothing reserved for you. Christ took it all. And God was just in doing so because he took everything we deserved and in return we take everything that Christ deserved. So, they, so, so that's why the distortion was so easy to embrace. Because they say, well, th- what they're saying makes more sense. Keep the law. And so throughout all of church history, we've dealt with this, right? You see it during the time of the Reformation, when there was all these crazy indulgences that were going on. We're saying, ah, oh, well, you know, if you, if you give money and, uh, to the church, and then maybe God's going to be a little, you know, kind uh, to your dead relatives in the afterlife. And there's all these crazy things that are nowhere in the scripture. But how is it that we can, now, never mind the fact that they didn't have the scriptures to read for themselves at the time, but they're just believing this message. But why is it well, the distortion is so easy to believe? Because it, it, cause it, there was a contribution. And the moment that they said, hey, you can contribute, the human soul said, okay, well, that makes sense. I should contribute. But the gospel says, no, Christ has done it all. 
And not only, not only during, you know, we're talking about the Reformation time, but all through church history, you see it popping up in different ways. Right? The Puritans in England, they're, 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 they came up with their own law, right? They wanted a place for their seminarians to be able to teach. So they said, hey, we've got an idea. We're going to come up with a second service. So after this service is done, we know that for, you know, years and years and years, you guys have all been playing soccer after church, and the ladies were serving beer, and they called that church ale. And uh, they used the money from the beer proceeds to take care of the church building. I think that sounds fantastic, right? Don't you? I think it's great. And the Puritans gave us a lot of, of beautiful things like personal devotion to God and, and not just inheriting your faith from your parents, but that confession. So they gave us beautiful things, and I don't want to misrepresent uh, the Puritan movement. But notice this, though. But what they did do was they said, hey, uh, by the way, if you truly love Jesus, obviously you wouldn't play soccer, you'd come to the second service. And that, of course, split the church because there were some guys who were kind of like, I kind of liked watching, you know, uh, drinking beer and watching my kids play, play soccer and talk about the sermon I just heard. But now I've got to go back to a second sermon and listen to this young guy. Right? And it split the church. It was crazy. 1618, the king has to write a book called the Book of Sports because the church is all fighting over this stuff. I mean, the church has always been a mess. It's just always needed Jesus. Right? All the time. Today, the rampant word of, uh, the, uh, the prosperity uh, word of faith guys, rampant today. They all say the same thing. They change the language, but they all say the same thing. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, Jesus saved you. But if you don't give 10% of your income to the church, your furnace might break. Your kids are going to get sick. All the same thing. they got these big, mega, crazy scenarios where the droves and droves of people, multi-bajillion dollars going into churches. Why does that happen? Why is it so easy to embrace that? Because the moment you hear that it's Jesus plus my contribution that keeps everything okay with God, you go, you know what, that kind of makes sense. There's no free lunches. And then there's the reformational churches, the reform guys. Dare I go there? Yes, of course I dare go there. The reformed guys have done all the same all the same kind of things. Jesus plus your right behavior. Jesus plus your catechism. Oh, hmm, your kids haven't been to catechism. Oh, they haven't said, oh, hey, I noticed that you weren't at the... I mean, on and on in the Reformational churches, adding, the, adding the, the, yes, there's what Christ did, and your right belief, and your right behavior, all these things together save you. I'm sorry. All my right belief and all my right behavior are going to be a lifelong trajectory because Christ has saved me. Apart from anything I did, apart from anything I do, in his great grace, in his great love, he has done it all. And the more that I marvel at that, the more my heart will, will, will melt and want to live to his glory. That was the distortion of the gospel. That has always been the distortion of the gospel. And Paul said, I'm not standing for it. We gotta, we gotta bend our knee, and we gotta rest in Christ, and and uh, and find our sufficiency in Him. See, the the book of Galatians reveals, and this will unpack as I unpack the book because I'm going to get ready to close here. This is closing number one, by the way. <clears throat> um, but what it reveals is that their problem wasn't only that they couldn't keep God's law; their problem was that they were relying on their obedience to save them. And the moment that we rely on our obedience we're in Paul's words we're damned because on your best day your obedience is not sufficient on your deathbed you only have one thing to say I'm with Jesus that's all you're going to say that's all I'm going to say that's all we got I'm with him 
I'm not enough. He is, and I'm with him. I'm united to him. I have lived my life loving him and wanting to live to his glory more and more, but at the end of the day, nothing that I did is sufficient. All him. I'm standing on Jesus' shoulders. He's the older brother that gave it all. And the life that I'm living is flowing from my marvel at that sufficiency. That's the gospel. Luther said it this way. He said that the law says do this, but it's never done. The gospel says believe this, and everything is already done. And that's the rest, church, that we get to be invited into. And so that, that, which leads to the conclusion, which is our assurance in the gospel, which we see in verses 4 through 6, that salvation is God's calling, God's plan, God's action, and God's work. There is no other gospel. Let's pray.